Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. Now, Matt Staub, we're two attorneys here with Pasha Law, practicing in California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. Thank you for joining us, everyone. We're actually, Matt and I are in the same room again, recording in San Diego, California. Great weather right now. Great time to visit. And we are going to talk about EB-5 visas, some of the most, one of the most controversial immigration visa program uh, out there, but it relates to businesses. It's a great way to raise money. It's also an excellent option for immigrants who want to come here and that have the cash to invest into an investment project. And I think it's actually uh, some really topical right now because there might be some upcoming changes in the law. Yeah, like you said, it really can be kind of the best of both worlds in that it's a way for people looking to obtain that permanent resident green card, these foreign nationals that can get that. And also, if it's you know structured correctly, it's supposed to bring jobs or create more jobs in the U.S. So it's seen as a win-win with the investment coming in, jobs created, everybody wins. But as you'll see uh, in some of these examples, it's not always the case. Yeah, let's start with the critics. I mean, a lot of critics say that it's unfair for immigrants to just basically pay their way and skip the line, so to speak, in being able to enter into the country. But of course, that may be an advantage, and that's exactly what it's designed to do. But some critics also say that the money that's brought in doesn't necessarily produce the same kind of benefits and results that they're looking for. And I I think that's arguable. I mean, I've seen arguments on both sides, but I think it's also difficult to argue that that money poses no benefit. I mean, that's money that was going into the country that wouldn't otherwise be invested. So even if it's just a 500000 or a million dollars. Right. And this isn't a immigration policy podcast where we're not, you know, but just generally speaking, if you have a situation where you have somebody, two different people coming to the country, one's bringing half a million or a million dollars worth them and the other one's not, I mean, obviously there's going to be, that's, that proves some sort of benefit. Like we mentioned before, it's at least at a minimum creating jobs for people that didn't have jobs before. Yeah. So let's get back to the basics here. What is an EB-5 visa and, and how do you get one? Uh, so basically, in order to qualify for an EB-5, you have to invest either 500000 minimum or a million dollars, and we'll get to that in a second as to why there's a difference, into a new business enterprise. And that within two years, or I should say for two years, you create 10 new jobs within that enterprise. And so it's not much more complicated than that, but there are a lot of details on actually how you execute that. And a lot of nuances when you want to meet with certain exceptions. For example, just as an example, what is exactly a new business? There are new businesses that you create from scratch, or there's new businesses that maybe you buy or develop from there. And if it's really old, what if you restructure the whole business? Does it become something new? Do you have to, what if you just change the name of the business? Is that still considered a new business? So there's a lot of nuances to how that works. Right. And some of it's more clear cut, though. You mentioned the the 10 new jobs. The rules of that are 10 new full-time employees must be created within this two-year period. It can't be the family members of the foreign national coming over, which that, that's part of it. I don't think we mentioned yet. And then the, the full-time aspect, you know, basically what you would expect, 35 hours or more per week classifies them as full-time. 
So what's, what's really attractive about this particular visa program is that once you make the investment and apply and that initial investment, that initial application is approved, you'll be able to move yourself and your family within a very short period of time after your interview. And compare this to other visa programs and other visa applications. It's really the, the fastest route if you can qualify. I mean, it's literally, you know, <laughs> some people look at it as you're bribing yourself in. I mean, it's it's not much further than that. I mean, you're paying to be able to jump the line. Yeah, <laughs> We keep mentioning, but it's not, you know, people look at it as kind of a pay-to-play model, but it's, again, it's it's creating some good if if done correctly. So it's, it's not like they're paying to, you know, as a bribe, it's going towards some sort of good as long as it's, you know, maybe not run through uh, alternate channels. So let's talk about the investment. We discuss how you need at least 500000 but in some cases it has to be a million. And where that differentiates is whether or not where the business is located, whether it is in what's called a targeted employment area. A targeted employment area is defined under the, under the immigration code and it basically says something to the effect of if it's in a rural area, or if it's in an area of high unemployment that matches, I think, more than 150% of the unemployment rate, then you can invest $500,000 instead of a million. And the idea is, is that, okay, the areas that we want to target in order to make sure that there's more growth there, we're going to lower the threshold to get more people in. And of course, what ends up happening is quite a number of people end up trying to find places where they can. They only have to invest five hundred thousand. Yeah, of course, of course, because you're talking about half the amount that would be required. But the the catch with that is it's it's easier said than done. The these targeted employment areas are more difficult to have these investments opportunities there. So a rural area, you know, you're not going to have. It's going to be not as close, obviously, to a, a big city where they're going to have these projects or you know, areas of high unemployment, same sort of problem. It's, you know, it's not as prone to be having these opportunities to invest. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a really detailed search that needs to be done, but it's, it's almost kind of like finding a, a diamond in the rough. Yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of strange and counterintuitive in that respect. It is difficult to find a, an investment that, because some investors or some immigrant investors Frankly, they just want to make sure that their money is secure, that they're not going to lose all their money, and because their primary objective is to to immigrate. But at the same time, it would be nice to get a nice, good rate of return. In fact, this kind of relationship is what really creates issues. And so that, that might be a good time to talk about how the SEC is getting involved with a lot of these EB-5 investments. Because the thing is, is that when you're selling securities of your business and equity in your business, you're still within the bounds of SEC just because you're doing it through an EB-5 program, you're still bound by all the regulations that, that apply to selling securities. So you can't commit fraud. You have to be very accurate and disclose the same information as you were raising money in Silicon Valley or some other VCs. It's not like, it's not like people are just going to give away money for you. Even if they trust you, the SEC may step in, especially if the investment goes bad. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We haven't really talked about it from that angle, but it's not the so much people, you know, they they have this money to quote unquote invest and they're going to do it and they don't really care how it works. I mean, the actual return on their investment is important. And so I guess maybe for these individuals that are, you know, some of them might not care and maybe those are the ones that are more susceptible to these fraudulent 
EB5 programs that are the SEC is cracking down on. But for others, I mean, it's still, even if you have a lot of money, half a million, a million dollars, it's still a good amount and you want to see a return on that. So the due diligence needs to be there, obviously, on the, the people that are running these. But you know, you're also going to want to look through it on your end if you're one of these foreign nationals looking to do the investment. So let's talk about a little bit of how, like you mentioned how some air, like the rural areas and the high unemployment areas about investing. How do you find projects? And so let's talk about some trends here, what's going on. And, you know, the EB-5 program has been around for a while. Let's see, it started in... 1990, right? Yeah, 19, I want to say 92, but yeah, the 90s, I believe. And it's gone through some changes since then, especially on how people use it. It started out what you may think is, okay, let's create a new business and put some money into it, and that'll boost the economy, create jobs. But basically, since the since the program in order to, it takes two years in order for you to prove that you created 10 jobs, if you build a big building and the construction takes two years, then you can actually count the construction workers, even if they're only going to be lasting for 10 year, or two years, as part of that adding 10 full-time jobs. In fact, you can even get to a point where if you build a big building and you bring businesses to the building and that creates indirect jobs, that could also be created. And that's where it gets a little more complicated because when you build these build, you can't build a big building for 500000 or even a million. And so a lot of EB-5 funds along with other investments gets pulled together. So how do you pull that together? Well, there's something called the regional centers. And these regional centers are created by private parties and Long story short is they basically are a matchmaker. And now most EB-5 investments and programs are real estate buildings and they go through the regional center. That's most. I have a very strong opinion that that's not the best way to do it. Because I think, you know, for me, if I'm investing my money, I'd want to make sure I'd have a little bit of understanding of the control and the management of it. But if it's if you really want a more passive route, that might be the way to go. Well, and the the reason that it's done this way is the for the actual investors that are trying to qualify under this EB five program, it has to be an investment in, of equity. It can't be a loan, and that's a that's a key distinction. And that's why these regional centers get pulled into play. Is the investors end up giving their money as the investment to these regional centers, which turn around and then do loans for the actual projects. That way. It's less of a risk for the regional centers, but still can qualify these investors under the program. So I think that's when you mentioned that's you know not the way that you would recommend. It makes sense. It's you're just adding another component to this whole equation where it's not necessary. But you know I, I can see why it's been set up the way it has. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, Matt. I mean, that, in fact, that is how they get around, you mentioned that loan rule, is that when you make the investment, it has to be a committed investment. You can't make it so that you have a buyback option or think creatively. The idea is that when you put the money in, in fact, they require you to put the money or vest the money prior to actually filing your application. And from an investor, an immigrant investor, that's you know a little, it might make you a little anxious because if you think about it, what if your application, even your initial application is denied? Now your money is invested into a company. There's no guarantee that you'll be able to get it back anytime soon. Even if they have the money to, to buy it back, they don't have the obligation to do so. So there is a little risk there. And so there, some investors, it d- doesn't work for all companies, but if you can find an investment that's willing to put your money in escrow for a year, that is an acceptable route so long as 
it's an escrow, and as soon as the application is accepted, then it gets released, or if it's denied, it gets returned to the investor. The problem with that is that there's not a lot of investments that allow you, you know, what kind of company is willing to wait a year or more for your application to be approved until, you know, until it's done. But it's it's not uncommon for sure. Yeah. So one of the other reasons EB-5 has gotten, you know, has received some recent press is because of Jared Kushner, which is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if you heard about that, Matt, right? Yeah. Well, was it... Was it Kushner? Was he? Well, so we should explain Kushner is the the son-in-law of Donald Trump. Um, But was it, I think it was Jared Kushner was the one that kind of threw out the project he was doing, which is the Trump Bay Street project, where I believe is finished, uh, the high rise in in Jersey City. He was kind of leveraging the, the Trump candidacy with this project, which brought some scrutiny, but also now it's so the, the building has been finished and he's turned what was 190 million in loans, 50 million of which through the EB5 program, uh, and, and was now then looking for about 250 million loan to cover the 225 million cost to, to build the luxury Trump Bay Street. Yeah, and, and actually, if a lot of the big towers that go up in these cities are. A lot of people don't are aware. They, people say like, "Oh, they're a bunch of Chinese investors and so forth," but that's the reason why. In fact, China mainland represents. I, I think the last statistics I saw was like ninety percent of the applicants or something crazy like that. And each country has a quota. So, like, if you're investing from China mainland or even Hong Kong, the line is much longer. So, if you're if you're in that, they they heavily advertise in those countries. So, you know, most likely if you, if you're immigrating from one of those countries, you're already aware of the EB-5 program and you're already aware that it's going to take a long time for you to get through that. But if you're not in one of those countries or if you're a business that are looking for investment, finding investors that are not in China mainland are actually more advantageous for that reason. And uh, I I forgot, oh yeah, back to Jared Kushner. And so what was going on is when they were advertising for some of those EB-5 funds, they were using Jared Kushner's name. And of course, Jared Kushner is related to the White House. and, And there was this innuendo that's, hey, these investments, your investments more likely to be approved than, than otherwise. But in actuality, like the, in fact, the person that was appointed to review these applications, I saw an interview with him. He's a Wall Street guy in the sense that he knows now, unlike his predecessor, he actually looks at business plans. He jokingly made a comment saying something like, when most companies, when they prov- provide their business plan, don't even provide a performa. And which is just crazy to me, but it kind of just shows you some of the scrutiny that people have against EB-5 programs is the the loose regulations of it. And so, so much so that when people provide a business plan, they're not even really documenting things that much. And that might be the culture that might be changing or, or shifting nowadays. I do need to correct what I said before. It was, it was Jared Kushner's sister that spoke about oh, it sister, during yeah. the trip to Beijing. So... Well, they were looking to raise another $150 million. But he was still involved. Like, he had some ownership in the company or something yeah. to that effect. Uh, but, I, you know, you can check your own facts by researching the New York well, Times article, I suppose. It was Kushner Companies, so. Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously the name is, is related. So, all right. So, getting back to the actual the timeline of it, I'm not sure if we mentioned this. So, so first, you make your investment. You you really have to vet the investment uh, properly. You have to engage your attorneys. You have to engage financial guys, uh, be able to review their, scrutinize their business plans, 
especially if you're going through a regional center, see their history and do some background checks even, you know, and, and the attorneys can do that for you as well. Make your investment, do the application. You have to have an immigration attorney that to do that as well. Then you basically wait for an acceptance. And, you know, there's different timelines, but I think right now it's at 12 to 15 months or so. And within that time, you'll once it's approved, you'll be able to move after your interview, just like any other green card status. And you'll get a conditional green card for more than a couple years. And that, that can be extended too and often is. And within that time, you grow the business, whether it's you and other invest, your investment group. And within two years, you apply to release that conditional green card and make yourself a permanent green card. And that conditional green card, by the way, is you have the same rights as a person with a permanent green card as well. So it's, and you get to bring your, all your family. It's a pretty nice gig. Once you get past the first milestone, which is that initial application, the rest is just a matter of a lot of waiting and paperwork. But, you know, you're in the United States, so it's a, it's a, it's a good position to be in. Yeah, and as we mentioned before, it's not just the person making the investment. It can be their family as well that can come along. So it's, I think that's obviously the big thing is just getting getting to the U.S. And then from there, it's you know making sure everything was done correctly so you can stay. There might be some changes, though. So that we're recording this in October of 2017, and Trump... And his predecessors, even Republicans before then, too, were saying that they want to make some restrictions on EB-5 visas. And there's basically two things that we expect to come down, is that they're going to raise a threshold of 500000 and a $1 million. They're going to increase that. We've seen numbers. What, what was the last number we saw from Trump? Uh, 1.35 1.35, yeah. So it could go up all the way to that. We'll see. It's hard to really predict what's going to happen. And then second is how you define targeted employment areas. By the way, targeted employment areas are usually certified by the state. So like, for example, California has a whole system where basically you tell them the location and they'll actually send you a certification letter based upon a certain previous year's unemployment data. Uh, And if you feel like it's something different, then there's another procedure to do that. So some states have that procedure. Other states, you actually have to produce your own research and hire an expert to produce to immigration office but so how they define a targeted employment area and the restrictions on that is going to be probably restricted as well so that means that if you're on the borderline maybe i don't know if they're going to increase like it has to instead of 150 percent of unemployment rate they have has to be 170 percent i don't know what the changes are going to be but somehow that's going to be restricted so so more likely you're going to have to it's going to be a lot easier if you can get into that million dollar threshold than if it was a $500,000 threshold. Right, exactly. And just interesting given his previous comments about immigration and stopping it all together, but when it's investment, I mean, it's not surprising. I it's guess. true. <laughs> like you would think from Trump's rhetoric, he would want to continue the investment. And obviously, he's very familiar with real estate. And without even knowing this as a fact, I assume that he's used plenty of EB-5 money for his previous projects, so I'm sure he's very familiar with the program. Oh, well, you know, the one we mentioned before, that's, you know, I said, what, $50 million of that? So, yeah, I would assume that other properties probably have, have benefited from it as well. So let's talk about some nuances. So there's a few that I wanted to touch. So let's talk about new enterprise. So uh, what's interesting about this is that, or I should say creating 10 jobs, if you actually invest in a troubled business, there's actually a definition of a troubled business, but the idea is that if it's a troubled business and you actually maintain 10 jobs, 
you, you qualify for the, in the same way. And the, the idea is that, okay, it's a troubled business, so most likely those 10 jobs are going to go away anyway. So if you maintain them, then it's the same as adding 10 jobs. And a troubled business is, you know, defined in you know, pretty specifically, but basically it's been, it has to be a business that's been in existence for at least two years. And that for the last, for either the preceding 12-month period or last 24-month period, there's definitely been a loss, but also that loss is for at least equal to 20% of the troubled business's net worth prior to the loss. And so in, in summary, all you're looking for is a business that has is running a loss for the last two years or so, and it represents 20% of what their business would be worth if it wasn't if it wasn't losing money. And so, uh, those businesses may be more difficult to find, especially right now. But they're definitely out there. I've I've seen it myself. And the hard part is, of course, you're investing money into a troubled business. Uh, you'd want to find out is the business a troubled business because of bad management. Or is it because it's a, I don't know, a car wash in a bad location? Or is it something that is actually in your control that you can actually fix? Maybe you're doing some kind of, uh, I don't know, what's an old business like uh, that's out of business now because of the internet or something? Newspapers. Yeah, like a newspaper <laughs> business. Well, not officially, but... Uh, not yet. Yeah. AOL. AOL, yeah. That's because, because of the internet. Actually, you heard uh, AOL Instant Messenger finally closed. Right? That's a well, yeah. It's, a, it's what made me think of it. I don't know if it's done yet. But I it thought was, it did. Well, they announced it was going to. All I know is I lost all my friends. They, <laughs> yeah. Those are the only friends I had. And they, yeah. And I think lastly is uh, defining a new commercial enterprise, and that's the term "new commercial enterprise." It, it sounds strange, but basically, if the if the business was created after 1990. November 29th, 1990, then it's considered a new commercial enterprise. And if it's older than that, then you need some significant restructuring. And those nuances may not be appropriate to cover in this podcast because this is kind of just an overview, but it it requires a significant restructuring of this, even not just the legal structure. You can't just change the name. You know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, taking a gas station and adding a car wash and, and you still have to add those 10 jobs. Uh, just like any other new enterprise. And so that's one thing to look at what type of business, because you don't necessarily have to create your own business from scratch. You can actually invest in an existing business so long as it creates those 10 jobs. Well, so I I think the the takeaway from this is is it's a very, it's a great opportunity, but it's, (laughs) it's not something you can just necessarily jump into. There's a lot of as we've pointed out, there's a lot of rules, a lot of very specific rules and different paths you can go down. So, you know, it's it's a good thing that the uh, the first step is really trying to, like you said, vet what the investment is, and then make the investment and then you go through with everything else. So it's, you really have to think. I mean, that should make people think about it before they actually, you know, try to go through this plan and as opposed to filing the application first and, and then making the investment. I think that would hopefully, the reason this is set up the way it is, is to prevent people from just trying to get this free pass. They really have to think about it. And at the end of the day, it's it's money of theirs that's on the line. And even if you're extremely wealthy, it's still a million dollars. is not chunk, chunk change. Unless you have a billion dollars. It's true. Then, then it might be. Then it's just one one hundredth of... But then you probably don't live in the U.S. because it's, you know... 
it's true. Not worth it. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the thing. That a lot of people want, you know, a second home or a, an escape from their current country, and that's often, you know, what's going on. But And that's why you are here in San Diego. That's very true. <laughs> Escaping from <laughs> the floods of Houston. Houston yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I, I think that's it. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and um, tune in next time when we talk about Matt's fashion sense. <laughs> All right, keep us on, keep us smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.